You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Well, I got to tell you, in the first service, Josh said he wanted to be like me when he grew up, but he's realized that I've never grown up. So I think that's probably why he changed it when he gets older, because I'm slightly older than he is. So I'm really excited to be here with you this morning, and I want to tell you a story. A number of years ago, I was volunteering at a church in Indiana and was speaking to the, the pastors of the church, and they were about to face another VBS, and the difference between their VBSs and what we did several weeks ago is their VBS program was held at night, and therefore, um, all the activities at the church happened after supper. And we were a suburban church, suburban of Indianapolis, and many of the people lived 25, 30 miles away out in farmland. So what they would do is they would come in with their children and wait there with their kids until BBS was over, hang out in the kitchen and eat all their cookies. And we said, well, we got to work something out here to keep the, kids out, or keep the parents out of the kids' cookies. So we decided that we would teach a class to the adults. Anybody that felt like they wanted to come and be a part of that, we met in the church conference room. Now, what's really cool about that, at that time, I was general manager of a very large Best Buy store in Indianapolis. I didn't have an office. Our little domicile where we were allowed to spend about 10 minutes every hour was a raised platform in the back of the store, in the center of the store, and it wasn't even an office. So our conference room in our church was really cool. It had the table. If you could imagine that I, I was at the end of the table, I had the little podium there, and then we had probably 15 seats around the table. We didn't know whether that would be big enough for the class, but we decided that would work. And it was really working well. And um, we got to Wednesday night. First two nights were great. We were teaching from a book called Find Us Faithful. Bob Russell is a senior pastor of a church in Louisville, Kentucky, a small church. Now I think they're about 21,000. And their auditorium seats 9,500. That's the size church they are. And in essence, it says, may all who come behind us find us faithful. And it's about sharing your faith with your children or your grandchildren. So often grandchildren are very close to the parents, and sometimes they're not, so they have to kind of rely on grandma and grandpa to help the kids with their Bible lessons and things like that. So whether you're a parent or a, or a grandparent, your number one job is to get your children into heaven. So we were teaching this class, and as, we, as Josh mentioned, this is kind of like the third installment of the cost of, of discipleship, and the cost is you need to learn a way to share your faith, whether it's Romans Road, Evangelism Explosion, One Verse Evangelism, The Bridge, you should take the time to learn how to share your faith, and probably the most effective is your actual testimony. And it really came to light on Wednesday night, July 13, 1994. Like I said, the class had gone well, and we were now in chapter 5 of the book, Committing Your Life to Christ. And because we're targeting young people in the book, I told the, the class kind of what I mentioned, 
how important it is that we share our faith with our children so they know that they can have eternal life. And I said, you know, one of the great things about that is when you share that with your children and you look at them right in the eye and you say, you know that you can know for sure if you're going to go to heaven. And it was kind of quiet like it is now. And I looked around the table and I looked at Carol. That's, we'll call her Carol because that's what her name was. But anyway, Carol, she looked at me and I looked around the table and, and there was Melissa and there was Lisa and there was Laura and then there was Sherry. All the men had boogied. I guess they were in eating the cookies, but anyway. And then I was over at Peggy and Peggy looked at me when I looked at her and she went, yes. And I said, you do believe that, don't you? And then I kind of heard Carol grumble. And I said, you believe that, right, Carol? And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, okay. And I thought, all right. I've been taught that if you don't understand point one, you can't move to point two. And I thought, okay, we need to do something different here. And all of a sudden, this was one verse of Scripture, 1 Peter 3.15 that says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. And I thought, I don't think Carol understands that. I need to take my lesson, kind of move it aside and do something different. So I asked the class, I said, could I take a few moments and share something I've learned from the Bible over the years? I said, I, I want to take our, our chapter 5, and, and I want to kind of put the, the book on the, the back of the table, and I'd like to spend a few minutes sharing some things with you. Is that all right? And, and again, it was kind of quiet, and I saw some, okay, we can do that. And I looked at Carol, and she kind of gave me one of these, whatever. And I said, well, let me ask a question to you. Carol, let me ask it to you. I said, have you come to a place in your life, excuse me while I talk to Carol, you, have you come to a place in your life where you know for sure if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven? And she said, well, I like to think I would, but I don't know. And I said, so you don't know? And she said, no. And I kind of looked around the table looking for some feedback. That's one of the things speakers need sometimes is feedback, just a, just a hint. But anyway, and I wasn't getting it. And I looked around, and, and Laura, she was straight shot in the back. I kind of looked at her, and, and she kind of had this, I'm not sure either, look in her eye. And Peggy, I looked at Peggy, and she was like Miss Bubbles, and she said, oh, absolutely. And I think I heard Carol go, really? And I said, you know, I said, uh, your answer to that question is interesting. And I learned from the Bible, it says that the Bible was written so that you may know you have eternal life. And I said, Carol and everybody else, can I ask you another question? She said, oh, sure. I said, if you were to die tonight and you stood at one of the gates, not sure who will be there, but the person there at the gate said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell that person? And Carol said, well, I guess what I would say is I think I should come into heaven because... I have tried to live the kind of life God wants me to live. Uh, (laughs) There's no question uh, I'm a backslider and I don't do the right things and I don't go to church all the time and 
I probably don't read my Bible enough, but I think that he would let me into heaven because I've tried. And I said, so effort is what would get you into heaven. She goes, yeah, I think maybe in a nutshell, that, yeah, that's it, okay. And I kind of looked around the table, and, and Sherry was beginning to agree, and she said, um, you know, and she wouldn't say anything, and Laura had still had a puzzled look on her face, and Peggy, I looked at Peggy, and I said, because I, I kind of thought I'd get a good answer from her, and I said, what do you think, Peggy? And she said, the reason you should let me into your heaven is because Jesus Christ died for me on the cross, I've accepted that, not just here, but here. And because of that, I should come in. And again, I heard Carol go, oh my, really? Almost like you're kidding. Now, Carol was probably in her early 60s, been a Christian for a long, long time. And I said, you know, I said, there's things I didn't quite understand about what I believed either. But, you know, I said, your answer to the second question is even more interesting. But I said, in the Bible, again, I found out that heaven is a free gift and cannot be earned. You cannot be good or you cannot have enough effort or you cannot try enough to get in heaven because it's free. Salvation is free. You can't work for it. You can't merit it. You can't be good enough. You can't have a good day one day and they say, okay, you're going to heaven. It's absolutely free. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And I said, let's say that you had a ton of money, and I didn't. And if you went to the right window, you could buy your way into heaven, but I couldn't because I don't have enough money. I said, do you think that would be fair? I said, you can't buy your way into heaven. There's not enough money on this earth to buy your way into heaven because the Bible says it's free. It's the free gift of God, not because of works, we read in Ephesians, lest any man could boast. Because if I did more than you did, then I could say, I got in heaven because of what I did. That doesn't work at all. Now, we have the idea that absolutely nothing is free. It requires work. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Not heaven. Even though it's free, there are many, many people who do not accept it. Now, this can be seen more clearly when we understand what the Bible says about us, men and women. Man is a sinner, woman is a sinner, and we cannot save ourselves. We've made a real mess of things. We brought on war because of choices we made, poverty, crime, immorality, lawlessness. The Bible tells us that all have sinned, and the Bible also tells us we are by nature children of wrath. When you think about sin, I said, Carol, what do you think sin is? She said, well, I guess it's doing wrong stuff. And I said, okay. I think that might be a simple explanation. The Bible definition says that we sin when we miss the mark that God has for us the way he wants us to live. Let's say, for example, this is a great illustration. We have a big dartboard target up here. I invite Tim up here to throw a dart and, and Dan up here to throw a dart and, and who else out there to throw a dart? And Keith come up here and throw a dart and we all threw a dart and we stood back and we admired our work. And Keith missed the bullseye by just a half inch. 
Good job, Keith. Tim missed it by three quarters of an inch. Dan missed it by an inch, and I missed the target. Who missed the bullseye? We all did. We all missed the bullseye, and the bullseye is the exact center of that target, and that's what God wants us, that's how he wants us to live. So each time we throw a dart with our action and our words and our thoughts and we miss that happy middle where God wants us to be, we sin. And man cannot save himself. We now have proven, I think, that we're sinners. We can't save him ourselves. And Isaiah 59 tells us that our sins have made a separation between us and God. God's love never changes for us, but our relationship with him changes as sin drives the stake in between us and God. In Proverbs, we read that there's a way that seems right to a man. Well, I'm doing right, I think, but its end leads to death. We could do a lot of things to try to save ourselves that we just can't. Just like a doctor cannot operate on himself. There was a doctor one time that had appendicitis. <clears throat> he said, you know, I really believe I could give myself a local and I could lay on the table with a series of mirrors and I could cut myself open and I could remove my appendix myself. He said, I can do that. I could be the very first doctor. Well, he passed out. He never got that accomplished. And just like with our sin, there's no way that we can rid ourselves of the sin ourselves. Well, you know, man's case seems hopeless, but let's see what the Bible says about God. The Bible tells us that God is just, and he must punish the sin in our life, but he's merciful and doesn't want to punish us. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness in our, in our souls. And we need, somebody needs to pay for that sin in our lives. Well, let's say that we got so good, we got so good that we only sin three times a day. 10 o'clock in the morning, shortly after lunch, and right before supper time. That's not too bad. That's pretty good, except three sins a day times 365 days a year times our age. For some of us, it's at least 40,000 sins. And could you imagine standing before a judge and he said, you've got 40,000 traffic tickets. There's only one place for you, buddy, and that's in jail. So there has to be payment for the sin in our life. Well, I'm not so bad. I don't sin as much as he does. Or she, I don't do the things that she does or he does. That's not the point. All have sinned and fallen short. The Bible says God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and he is merciful in that way. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but sh should reach repentance. Okay, let's follow closely here. If God is just and must punish sin, but is merciful and doesn't want to punish us, the sinner, that is, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner, isn't that a problem? How, how's he going to solve that problem? Well, God solved that problem by coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. God's answer to our sin is Jesus Christ. So I said, Carol, tell me who you think Jesus is. 
And she said, well, that's easy. He's the greatest man that ever lived. And I said, okay. He was a great teacher. I said, okay. And I kind of looked around the table. And by now, I was beginning to get some nods from some of the people because they were beginning to realize they knew a little bit more about God and maybe a little bit more about Jesus than they were willing to admit. And I said, well, you know, the Bible tells us that he's more than, Jesus is more than just a great teacher and a great, a great man. I said, he's God in the flesh. The Bible says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. It goes on to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus spoke with all of the authority of God, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, he is in fact God in the flesh. And what did he do for us? Why did he come to earth? He died for us. And he purchased our place in heaven. Remember I mentioned that there has to be payment for the sin. God hates the sin in our lives, but he loves you, the sinner. That created the dilemma. So who's going to pay for the sin? His name is Jesus. That's the only reason he came. Could you imagine if you knew as a youngster, remember Jesus was preaching in the temple at 12, that he knew what his role was, was to die for us. Even before he, you knew him, he knew you. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on Christ the sin of us all. Our sin cannot go unpunished. So let's say that this is a different book and in very, very fine print, very fine print, are all of the sins that you've committed so far in your life. The 40,000, the 50,000, the 60,000, because you said you were getting good only three times a day. And what God did is he took the, way, the book that had all your sins, all of our sins, the sins of the world, the Bible tells us, and stacked those up on his shoulders, and he died for us. There was no question there have been doctors that have proven the pain that Christ went through in his crucifixion was just unbelievable, unbearable. But what hurt even more were the sins that he was holding on that you and I have created and committed, and that's what hurt the most. The Bible tells us he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The Bible also tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. That's, you read about that if you know, if you're a student of the Old Testament, blood sacrifices. So on the cross, Jesus got what he didn't deserve so we could get what we don't deserve. That's the meaning of grace. It's a free gift. And I said, Carol, that's, that's the part that you were having trouble holding on to. And I said, Carol, write this on your paper. Take the word grace, G-R-A-C-E. Okay, you, oh no, go ahead and write it, I said to her. I want to make sure she was tracking with me. You can write it on your paper too. God's riches at Christ's expense. God wanted his forever life, eternal life for us. And only Christ could bring that to us with his death on the cross. And I said, okay, you got that, Carol? I said, now, who do you suppose 
receives this gift of grace, this free gift of grace. And she said, well, I guess anybody who wants it. And I said, well, the Bible tells us that only those who receive Christ by faith can have this free gift. So faith is the key to the free gift. I said, let me give you another example. I said, I just have a few keys here. They all look pretty much the same. The phone's ringing in my house, and you need to get in there, and you've got to choose one of these five or six keys to get in my house, and there's only one that will open my door. There's only one right key. And I said, once you figure that out, then you can use it. And in this case, once you figure out that faith is the key to eternal life, then you'll know that you can have it forever. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, many people mistake two things for saving grace. This is important. You don't want to miss this. Many think saving grace is an intellectual agreement with historical knowledge. That is, if you believe in the existence of God, and most people do, you're going to go to heaven. That's all you need to know. I believe in God. I'm going to go to heaven. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Nathan mentioned a verse to us, James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demons believe in God, and they know how powerful he is, and it worries them. It scares them. It makes them shudder and shake. Others think faith is trusting God for daily needs, food, clothing, shelter, a job, health. Well, that's good to trust him for those kinds of things. Many trust God to get them from here to Portland, Oregon, but don't trust him to get, him to he get them to heaven. So faith, saving faith, is trusting in Christ alone. It means transferring your trust from whatever you have trusted for for your salvation before to Jesus and Jesus alone. It's like the story of the great tightrope walker. Many uh, say the man that this story talks about is a great Frenchman named Blondin. And he went to Niagara Falls a number of years ago with a whole bunch of equipment, a lot of cable, and he stretched cable from one side of the falls to the other side. And people said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to walk across the tightrope. And you know how misty the falls are. And they go, really? So they continued to watch and crowd began to grow. And he got ready to go up there. And I guess they had him mic'd or whatever. I don't know. And he said, how many of you believe that I can do this? And they said, okay, we think you can do this. So he gets the, and he goes across the falls. It's really cool. And they're all clapping for him. And then they said, what are you going to do next? And he said, I'm going to go across the same tightrope blindfolded. How many of you believe that? And they went, oh, yeah. And now even more people were gathered. The word got out there was this crazy man growing across the falls. He did that with no problem. He said, now, how many of you believe that I can do that with a chair strapped on my back? Oh, they said, we, we got to see this. And so sure enough, he went across with a chair on his back. And he said, okay crowd finally quieted down. He said, how many of you believe that I can do that with a man strapped in the chair? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, you can do that. And he said, which one of you will get in the chair? 
Well, now, things got kind of quiet. And finally, his little nine-year-old daughter said, I will, Daddy. I'll get in that chair. I trust you. That's what saving faith is. It's not standing down on the shore and saying, yep, I believe, I believe in God, I believe there's a God, yes, indeed. It's getting in the chair. It's truly getting in that chair and say, I do believe. Faith is another acrostic, so I say, Carol, write this one down too, next to grace, F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I take him or I trust him. Whatever you were counting on before or you thought, whether it was your, your job, your IRA, your savings account, your ride, or whatever you thought would be enough prestige to get you into heaven, scrap that because only belief in Jesus Christ will get you there. Well, saving faith is also obedience. What counts with God is whether or not we obey as a result of our faith. The scripture says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. There used to be a tongue-in-cheek saying that we Christians are, are educated beyond our obedience. We know what we're supposed to do, but we just don't do it. Don't know why, but we just don't do it. God has asked us to be obedient in three ways to really demonstrate that we are followers of Christ, that we do believe that what I've just shared with you that you have, held, have hidden in your heart and you know. And the one thing that he asks us to do, the first, there's three things, is repentance. He asks us to repent daily. Acts 17.30 says, the times of ignorance God overlooks. Now that you know, you're here. We took attendance. Now that you know, he wants you to repent of your sins. And let me make sure you understand what repentance is. Okay, we're getting ready to leave after the service. And you get in your car and you go up Copper Mine to Hunt Highway and you're going to turn right. Well, there's a sheriff's car there and he's asking everybody to turn left. You say, well, that's no big deal. I'll just go down the Magna Road and turn right and go up through that area and then I can get back where I need to be. And you get down the Magna Road and there's a sheriff down there too. And next thing you know, you're headed down toward Arizona Farm Road and you go, wait a minute. I'm going to Queen Creek. It'll take me forever to get there going that way. So you stop. You've realized that you're headed in the wrong direction. And what do you do? You turn around and you go in the right direction. The word repentance actually means about face. It's not just saying, I'm sorry for the sin in my life, the direction I've been going. You actually stop, perhaps take a quick assessment, and you figure out the direction that you need to go, and you go in that direction. God asks us to do that daily. The second thing to show that we, in fact, are believers, demonstration of our faith, demonstration of our obedience, is to confess Christ. Not confess your sins, he wants you to do that too, but to confess Christ to men. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He asks us to share that with people. Don't hide your light under a bucket, the word tells us. Let people know that you have a belief in a Savior. A man named Jesus Christ made all the difference in your life. Confess that often. Don't let people wonder if you're a believer. And the third thing is ask us to be baptized, to be immersed. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Kind of looked around the table, and I was beginning to get, like I've seen some, from some of you, some of these nods. Carol was still pretty neutral. Pretty neutral. So in a nutshell, the Bible tells us that we're all sinners, and Christ died for us, for our sins, and then he rose again. And if you are willing to trust him with faith and obedience, you can receive the gift of eternal life. And I said, I don't want to assume any one of you around this table or around this room have made all those decisions. So I said, well, let me, let me cover up just a few more notes here. And I said to all of the people, and starting, starting with Carol, I said, does this make sense to you, what I've just said? And, and I did get a bit of an agreement from her. And I got a number of positive head shakes from the people around the table. And Peggy, again, bless her heart, she was just exuberant. And she said, yes, thanks for sharing it. And I said, you bet. And I said, if you have never made a decision like that, maybe you were one of those people that just believed, but you never received it. I said, you want to do that tonight? And I really didn't get anybody to say, yes, I want to do that right now. And I said, okay, remember three things I, I'd mentioned about obedience. Are you willing to, com to continue to repent of your sins? Are you willing to confess Christ, that is to share him with friends, relatives, anybody that God puts in your path? And I said, if you've not been baptized, are you willing to be baptized soon? And I said, if you really want to do this, I said, there's no better time than right now. And I said, the baptistry has water in it. We can go do that. And I give you that same challenge. The baptistry doesn't have water in it, but we can fill it. Maybe you've never, ever officially asked Jesus into your heart. In a little bit, we're going to have some prayer partners down front here. And maybe you just need to come and talk to someone and say, I remember what, what Pastor Rick said, and, and uh, I think there's some things I need to do myself. And it's, it's not between you and one of us or one of the prayer partners, it's between you and God. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance, before you knew, and now you know. So my encouragement would be that you do something with that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have had this morning to share about the cost of following Christ. We thank you for what Christ has done in our lives, for those of us that are believers, and for those that might be ready to make that decision for the very first time this morning. It's exciting to see what God will be doing in their lives after they've made their personal decision to begin to follow Christ. And it will be exciting to see that happen. Father, we are all sinners. And we need your steadfast love and your never-ending forgiveness. We trust in you, dear Father. And because of Christ, we can truly live and serve and make a difference in this world. 
We pray, Father, that you will quicken our hearts to learn a way to share our faith, whether it be through a testimony or whether it be through some method of sharing our faith that comes directly from the Bible, that you would, in fact, Father, have us to learn some formed way to share our faith. And we pray, Father, that you will find us faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. At LifePoint Church, we celebrate. We celebrate new life. We celebrate baptisms. We celebrate offering, and we celebrate communion. So this morning, as we celebrate communion, as we remember what Christ did, I, I hope maybe we can look at it a little bit different. I'm sure there's not anything I could say up here that some of you who have been in church your whole life have never heard before. The last three weeks, we have talked about a relationship with Christ being a call to action. That when we're fully sold out, when we live every part of our life for Christ, when we've fully counted the cost of what it means to follow Christ, what it means to disciple one another, and now what it means to share our faith, it requires action. So on the night before Jesus, his betrayal, he's with his closest friends and these people that he's poured into for so long. And he knows they've got a crazy amount of journey and work ahead of them. So they sit down and eat a meal together like they have so many times. And absolutely, communion is a representation of the power of the cross like Pastor Rick shared. It's a represent, his body is a representation of the healing power of the cross. His blood is a representation of the cleansing righteousness that only comes through the blood of Jesus. But he also, you, you, he also chose to use two things that are sustenance to represent those. So as they sat there and ate the bread and they sat there and they drank the wine, it was him preparing their bodies for the journey ahead. So this morning as we accept these calls to action, for some of you, God's calling you to something different, something new. Look at communion as a chance for Christ to sustain you in, in every part of your, your life. And those of you who are in here and you haven't made that decision yet, maybe you've been thinking about it for a few weeks. We just challenge you, before you take communion, have a relationship with Christ first. And that comes from the word of God, the Apostle Paul says to, to not take communion unless our hearts are prepared for it. And definitely not if we're not believers. So if you're in here this morning, you haven't made that decision yet. Nobody in here is looking at you. Nobody's judging you. Just either sit in your seat as you continue to search or come up and talk to one of the pastors or the prayer team and tell them, hey, I want to know what this is about. And we would love to take communion with you after that. For the rest of us in, the, in this room, Take a moment, reflect. Ask God what he's calling you to do. And then trust him to be your energy through the week. Trust what he did on the cross to fulfill you and sustain you. In every part of your life, we have this ability to compartmentalize things. We say, well, Christ just died for our sins. But he didn't. He, he is in and through in all of everything. So he didn't just die for our sins. He died so that we may live life and live it more abundantly. And we cannot do that unless we live in 
the power of, of what he did. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your body. We thank you for the sustaining power that comes through your body that was broken, for your blood that was shed so freely. God, every one of us in this room comes to you as a sinner. And we take a moment and we, we repent where we have fallen short, but we bask deeply and freely in your grace upon grace upon grace, and we thank you for that. God, will we always be a church who remembers the fullness of what you've done, not just pieces of it, not just the convenient ones, but the challenging ones too. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and come forward.